Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week you're going to hear a live event, a recording held at the recent Braemar Literary Festival, where I'm in conversation with the crime writer Ian Rankin, Sir Ian Rankin as he now is, talking about his new Rebus novel, A Heart Full of Headstones. Hello, everybody. I hope you've all got your mobile phones turned off because there'll be violent altercation if anyone goes off in the middle. It's, it's normally mine, actually, as audience. So we're going to start by giving you a world-exclusive flavor of Ian's new book, A Heart Full of Headstones, which is the latest Rebus adventure. And it begins with Rebus in a situation in which he isn't completely familiar. So Ian's going to read a page or two, and then I'll ask him some inane questions. John Rebus had been in court plenty of times, but this was his first time in the dock. As the charge was being read out for the jury's benefit, he took it all in. Things hadn't yet recovered from COVID. Apart from the judge and Rebus, everyone was masked, and there were cameras and monitors everywhere. The jury were being housed elsewhere, a cinema on Lothian Road, as a health precaution. He could see them courtesy of one of the large monitors, just as they could see him. He tried to remember his first time giving evidence in a case, but couldn't. It would have been the 1970s, not quite half a century ago. The lawyers, court officials, and judge had probably looked much the same. Today, Rebus was flanked by two uniformed guards, as would have been the case back then. He'd been in the witness box once when the accused had tried barging his way out of the dock to have a go at him, one of the guards hauling him back. What was the accused's name? Short, skinny, curly hair. Began with an M, maybe. Ah, everybody's memory started going eventually, didn't it? It wasn't just him, an age thing, like the COPD that meant he was allowed to keep an inhaler in his pocket, along with the face mask. He wondered how his dog was doing. His daughter, Samantha, had taken Brillo to hers. Rebus's granddaughter doted on the mutt. He was glad the public gallery was empty meant he hadn't had to fight with his daughter to stop her attending. There was a simplicity to life in custody. Oh, oh that's, a good, now that's the reaction you look for. This is actually really embarrassing because I just brought this book with me from home and I've, I've actually signed it. Uh, <laughs> and that means that there's a book sitting at home in a jiffy bag that's meant to be sent for a charity auction that is unsigned. Oh. <laughs> I'll tell my wife, don't send it, don't post it. Yeah. So, you know, how, what was the germ of this book? I mean, did you have that, like, oh, I'll just put Rebus in the dock and see where it goes? Uh, no, I, the germ, the germ, the germ. I'd been, trying to, I'd, I'd been trying to write a book since August last year, and nothing was really happening. And then January, my wife and I went on holiday, and in a sheer panic, I think, I just started to get the ideas started coming. And I would tap it into my phone every day. I would sit and tap more and more of the, the notion of the plot, the theme and everything else into the phone. Um, and Rebus in the Dock is partly because I thought a trial during COVID was such an interesting courtroom scene. It's not something I'd really come across before. My son served on a jury during COVID and although he couldn't talk to me about the actual trial, 
obviously, you know, you could tell me that they were, the, the jury were in the cinema on Lothian Road. The um, accused and the lawyers and the judge and the kind of professionals were all in the courtroom and all, everything was done by cameras and screens. I just thought that's really interesting. So I decided um, to have a courtroom scene and then I thought, well, why not Rebus on trial? And uh, that was it. And did you then know from the beginning what he was going to be on trial for? I'm, I'm afraid, sorry, there's going to be no spoilers because you have to wait quite a long time in the book to figure out what he is on trial for. <laughs> but, I mean, I, you know, it's sometimes said that writers are either architects or gardeners. You know, they either plan completely ahead or they just let it grow and see where it takes them. And I got the impression that quite rarely among crime writers, you're more of a gardener than an architect. Is that right? I think the phrase we often use is planners and pantsers. <laughs> you, you, you plan or you fly by the seat of your pants. And more crime writers than you might imagine fly by the seat of their pants. So when I started this, I, I've, I vaguely knew what I thought Rebus was going to be accused of or had been charged with. I didn't quite know how I was going to get to that situation where he would be on trial. Um, and I certainly didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Um, I never do. I just start making it up mostly as I go along. And um, so, yeah, the, the, it's like there's a, a deep structure to the novel that I can't see while I'm writing it. And it's only in the process of writing it that, that I begin to see what the structure is. So I know as when the detectives arrive at a murder scene in my books, I know as little as they do. And as they start to work things out, I start to work things out. And then the light bulb moment is usually, touch wood, two thirds of the way through the first draft. And that's where the book tells me where it's going. And that's when I go, hooray. Um, I, this, I'm going to get all the way to the end with this book. Sometimes it's the second draft. I mean, I wrote a novel years ago called The Hanging Garden. And at the end of the first draft, I still didn't have a killer. <laughs> um, I hadn't worked out in my head who the killer was. And I went back and read it. And I thought, well, maybe it's you. And maybe you did it because of this. And, maybe, and so then I engineered the second draft. The first, my first drafts are always incredibly rough and ragged. Um, it's just a kind of spine. It's, it's, does the plot work? Um, does the theme make sense? And is the plot actually, is the plot doing the job that the theme needs it to do? And then the second and third drafts are polish, 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 and make it look like it was always meant to be this beautiful, elaborate cake. Um, not a piece of gardening or even a piece of architecture, but a very elaborate cake. And what you can't see is everything that's kind of holding it up all the kind of pins and things that are inside to stop it from flopping over. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's I, I, you know what, I, it's fun writing that way. There was years and years and years ago, I wrote a, well, I didn't write a book. I planned the book in such meticulous detail that when I sat down to write it, I didn't feel the need to write it because I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> so, and it was a great idea. It was a book called Sabbath Child, if you want it, Sabbath Child. And it was a kid who'd killed a parent one week before the age of criminal responsibility. And it was the question of whether they'd been set up to do it because so, they couldn't be tried and put in jail for the killing. So had somebody set them up to do it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Please. Because um, <laughs> I, I detailed it out to such an extent that I didn't need to write the story. And so did you, I mean, obviously you, you found your way to the way you write now. How did you start out writing crime? I mean, was it, was it you were a kind of crime nut as a kid? I, I, I'm the only... Crime writer, I know Sam, who didn't read crime fiction when they were young. Um, I read comics, 
And I watched plenty of crime shows on TV. I loved the Sweeney, I loved Kojak, Zed Cars, um, all of that. I just loved them when I was a kid, but I didn't read crime fiction. I didn't read Agatha Christie or Dorothy L. Sayers or Margie Allingham or any of the American crime writers of the time. Um, and I went off to university to, in my mind, become a literary novelist and eventually a professor of literature uh, and left university and, uh, and hated the cold, hard commercial world outside. So I begged to get back in to do a PhD on Muriel Spark. And once they'd given me the secure funding for three years to do a PhD, I thought, what would Muriel want? <laughs> would, would she, never have met her, would she want me to spend three years writing a thesis which will sit on a dusty shelf in the university library never seen by anybody? Or would she want me to use this time to try and become a writer? Now, by this stage, I was writing poetry and short stories, but I hadn't quite got the gumption to start a novel. So during the three PhD years, I wrote three novels. And the first two were not crime, but the third one had a cop rebus in the book, which was meant to be my one and only crime novel. I didn't even think of it as a crime novel. I thought of it as a retelling of Jekyll and Hyde that just happened to have a cop as the main character. But it was published as a crime novel. It went to the crime section in the bookshops. I was horrified, obviously. <laughs> um, I went running off to a, a guy who'd been a big influence on me, Alan Massey. He was a novelist and he'd also been writer in residence at Edinburgh University during my time there. Um, and I said, Alan, I seem to have written a crime novel by mistake while trying to write the great Scottish novel. And he said, he said a very, he said something quite shrewd, actually. He said, well, Ian, you may never get the kudos, but you might get some cash. <laughs> uh, and as a, as, a, as a young working class man, that was quite important to me that I might actually be able to make a living from my writing. And so I decided the crime novel might be for me after all. And did you come to peace with the, I mean, obviously the cash would be something that would be welcome, but... Did that sense that, oh, there isn't as much kudos in this, or there's, there's not as much freedom to write in the crime novel, was that something that, that continued to bug you, or did you start, start to realize there are possibilities in crime fiction that are available to me that wouldn't be available? I, I think fiction? early on I began to see, I mean, what did I want to write about? I wanted to write about the human condition, human nature, good and evil. I wanted to write about the city of Edinburgh, the complexity of it, the social complexity of it the various strata from the rich to the poor and how they, how they connect. Um, I wanted to write about corruption and skullduggery in high and low places. The crime novel was perfect. And it can deal with the biggest themes, really big themes, but it, it's not standing on a soapbox. It's got to entertain you. So the reader doesn't always realize that they are be these big themes are being addressed. Um, and so it became, I mean, over time I saw this is perfect. And I, I started reading crime fiction once I'd written a crime novel, and I read P.D. James and um, Ruth Rendell and uh, Reginald Hill uh, and, and people like uh, James uh, Elroy and Lawrence Block um, and Michael Connolly eventually in the States. And I was attracted to that urban crime fiction, that quite harder-edged, flinty crime fiction that had always come out of the States. Um, and so that became the kind of template for the early Rebus books was, you know, once I'd shifted away from Jekyll and Hyde, I've never actually shifted away from Jekyll and Hyde. Every book is a retelling of Jekyll and Hyde in a different way. Um, I'm very lazy that way. Once I've got, once I've got that theme and I just can't, you can't, I can't get away from it because that takes us to the nub of crime fiction, which is why do we human beings keep doing terrible things specifically to each other? Why? 
And, and Jekyll and Hyde is one attempt to answer that question. Did, I mean, you talked about the sort of hard-edged urban crime that's in that, I guess, descent from Chandler and people like that, but do you, what do you make of the explosion of so-called cosy crime? Is this, a, is this a good thing? Are we going to see Rebus appearing in a cosy crime novel? I mean, he's not very cosy. Well, I mean, I, if I keep writing about him, eventually he's going to have to be in a care home. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. So um, I, can, I can either do a joint novel with Richard Osman or, uh, or I can become the Scottish Richard Osman, you know. Because, uh, you know, he's, he, Rebus's health is not what it was, and he's getting on. So eventually the care home is, is coming for him. It's a, I mean, I, I think it is interesting. I think this, this recent, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can put it all back to things like Brexit and um, COVID, but people are looking for comfort reads, and they're looking for a world that makes sense, and they're looking for ordinary people solving problems. Because they look around them at professional people politicians and such like, and they don't seem to be solving problems, they seem to be creating problems. So you then go back to ordinary people solving mysteries and starting with chaos, a murder is a form of chaos. Chaos has been introduced into a society. But your rational, usually middle-class, nice, ordinary people solve the crime and bring order back from chaos. So you end up with a sort of Shakespearean comedy where everything's been shaken up, but at the end everything goes back to normal. Um, and people are clinging to that, they're grasping that. We've got Richard Osman, of course, we've got Reverend Richard Coles is doing it. But also I think there's a deeper interest in what can young new writers do with the, the, the tenets of the, 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 the cozy, the whodunit, the tra traditional English style whodunit. And you've got people like Janice Hallett, who are taking the sort of Agatha Christie style, there's been a murder in an amateur dramatic society or whatever. Um, but she does it all through emails and text messages. And so the detectives, who are actually two young law students, who've, or two young lawyers who've been given the job by their boss and says, look, look at all the evidence from this, from this case. Do you think the right person went to prison? And they're, all they get is, and all the reader is given are text messages and emails and stuff. You never actually meet the characters. Um, and she does it in a really refreshing way. And, um, and, and other people are doing things like using the, uh, the, 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 the true crime podcast and the writing novels structured, structured as though they are true crime podcasts. Denise Miner has done it in one of her books. It, um, I'm going to forget his name now. Uh, he's got a big long name and it will come back to me in a minute. Uh, Adrian? Uh, anyway, uh, he's got, they're called Six Stories. If you Google Six Stories, um, you'll find his name, which, is, which will come back to me in a minute. Um, but he does it, so it's a true crime podcast, and this person has gone to the, somewhere where something happened that was an unsolved murder, and interviews all the people involved. Um, and I think that the crime novel keeps reinventing itself, always has done, and that's why it survives and thrives, and partly does it by addressing the fears of its contemporary audience. So we were, we were backstage talking a little bit about this as well. You've got the cosy, the reinvention of the cosy crime novel, but you've also got... Um, kind of darker psychological thrillers, paranoid thrillers, paranoid conspiracy thrillers seem to be to the fore just now. And a lot of it started with Gone Girl, where, you know, you can't trust your partner, you can't trust your friends. And this is a fear, this is the contemporary audience's fear of the modern world and modern technology. So your doorbell can be spying on you, or somebody can use your doorbell to spy on you. Alexa can be used to spy on you. Somebody can steal your identity online your, your lover, your spouse, your neighbors, your family are not who you thought they were. They're hiding secrets from you. 
they've got dark secrets in their past or in their present. And it's that thing about we just don't know, we're, we're, we don't know where the truth lies in the modern world. We don't know where the truth lies. We're surrounded by fake news and interpretations of news that are being used as propaganda. And we don't trust technology. Every day we're getting pinged text messages. A Royal Mail package is waiting for you, but needs to be paid for. Fuck off. Um, <laughs> you know. I mean, we've gone a long way from the, 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 the Nigerian millionaire. Oh, there's a million pounds waiting for you in a Nigerian bank account. I just need some money on trust. But, but, all the, but, these, things, but these, get very, these get very sophisticated, these, these um, scams. Um, and we're, we're, we're frightened that we're losing control of our lives. We're losing autonomy. We're, um, uh, and, and all of that, the crime fiction of the period reflects. Well, over the long period that you've been writing Reba's books, this new technology has kind of come in, so you've had to make an accommodation with yeah. it. I mean, I know some crime writers, which is maybe why there's such a revival of historical crime fiction, say, you know, I can't do this anymore. I, you know, if there's GPS everywhere, if there's DNA, if there's wall-to-wall yeah. -wall surveillance, yeah. it's really hard to construct a mystery because the cops would just go, oh, you were there, right, you done it. Yeah. Um, how do you write around that, or do you find it it, it's helpful to put the technology No, it's on. not helpful. It's, it's a pain in the backside. It really is. Um, yeah, as you say, all this tech... I mean, the thing is, if you ignore the technology, we just go, why aren't they checking the GPS? Why are they not going scrolling through our phone and seeing what, who she last spoke to? You know, why don't they just check the CCTV cameras in the street outside? So you've got, to, you've got to mention it in passing, even though that's not intrinsic to the plot, but you've got to mention that the cops will be doing all this stuff. Um, and it just gets in the way which is why it was such a relief when I was asked to, to finish um, William McIlvany's final book by his, by his widow. I was asked if, if I would have a look at it, maybe finish it. And at first I was incredibly reluctant, but there was a, there was, it was refreshing to go back to 1972 Glasgow. And there's no CCTV, there's no DNA analysis, there's no mobile phones, there's no none of this. There's no computers in police stations. Um, so you're reliant on old fashioned policing instincts and, and a network of informers. And that was, it was just, it was great fun to go back and not have to factor that stuff in. You see it in movies all the time, don't you? No signal or, or flat battery. You've got to get the mobile phone out of the equation somehow. <laughs> Enemies of crime writing. Um, now, Rebus himself, you know, can you talk a bit about the relationship you have with this character? Because you're... You know, he's been with you for a very long time. Mm. You've made a decision which not all, I mean, lots of series writers, partly I think because they're worried about shooting the fox, don't let them age or don't let them age in real time. You've let Reba's age, you know, he's More now really knackered and he's getting worse. Um, you know, was that to put a lifespan on him? I mean, you seem to have trouble, as it were, letting him go. I think it's about a decade ago, you said, you know, exit music is going yeah, to be the last no, Rebus. Well, I mean, I, I did let him go. I let him go because a cop phoned me up one day and said, how old is Rebus? And I said, he's 58. Why? He said, he's got to retire at 60. I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> he said, mandatory retirement age for detectives in Scotland is 60. If you're a, uh, if you're a uniform, it's 55. <laughs> I went, God sakes. I said to my publisher, look, I'm sorry, but Rebus is going to have to retire. The next book will be the last book. And he went, what? He said, just don't, nobody bothers about that. Nobody bothers, just keep them going. You know, Adam Dalgleish, P.D. James, the detective, was 110, still going. <laughs> um, you know, Wexford was 85, still going. Nobody, and I said, no, no, the books, and, the, and the, here come, this comes to the, the, the nub. 
is that I thought, I want to write about contemporary Scotland and Edinburgh and how they are changing and evolving. How can I do that if my detective doesn't age? He's got to age. Every, every reader knows, oh, that's this year, that's last year, therefore time has moved on. Therefore, the detective must have moved on in age to an extent. Now, I've slowed the clock a bit, I've slowed the clock a bit, but when I wrote Exit Music, I thought that was the end of Rebus. And for five years, I didn't write about him. Um, and then I got an idea for a cold case, and there was a cold case unit in Edinburgh that was staffed by retired detectives. And I thought, oh, this is what Rebus would be doing. This is what he would be doing. He wouldn't go gentle into that good night or open a B&B &B in Marbella or, <laughs> or become a cab driver or something. He would, uh, he'd want to be, still be a cop of some, a detective in some, in some way. So I brought him, I was able to bring him back and, and he, he liked being back and I liked having him back. And I just, every time I think this might be the end, I find something else to do with him. And he seems very willing to come back. Yeah. Uh, despite the age and the fact that he's had to move from a second floor flat to a ground floor flat because he can't manage stairs anymore because of the COPD. Um, I mean, this book is set in a time of COPD specifically because I went into a pub shortly after the pubs reopened um, after, after COVID. Um, and, uh, I, I, and there was a guy wearing a lanyard with a little laminated thing on it. I said, Charlie, what's that? He said, oh, I've got COPD and this tells people I don't have to wear a mask indoors. I went, oh, that's brilliant. Because Rebus has COPD. So, so he would have a lanyard with a, a laminated thing in it and he would try and use that to get across the cordons at, at murder scenes and things. So, he, so this retired guy shuffles up to a cordon at a murder scene and puts on the old lanyard and thinks he'll get out. Like having a clipboard and a bloody yellow jacket, you think you can go anywhere, right? Clipboard, high-vis jacket, you can get anywhere. Um, he thinks, it'll, and it never works, but I just thought I'll have some fun with him having his little lanyard with his COPD badge on it. Yeah, well, so, so that's why I decided the book would be set during a time of COVID. Yeah, I love that also he's, he's constantly being a pain in the neck and invading the police station and, you know, go and get me a cup of tea and then he's, he's out and into the incident. Yeah, yeah, and, as, soon know, as, got, as soon as he's got, as soon as he's got a little, he sees a little way in, he'll just be in there. I mean, now he can't get past the front desk because when he goes to the front desk, the young cops on the front desk don't know who he is anymore and he's no longer a detective. So it, for a few books, he could actually wangle his way past the front desk because he knew the person on the desk now that's not possible. See, I like that. That keeps, that keeps him fresh and it keeps me on my toes because I'm not dealing with the same person book after book after book. His life has evolved. He has evolved. He's moved on. So I'm dealing with almost a different, slightly different character in each book. So that means I've, I can't get lazy. I can't get lazy. I've got to always think how has his life changed and what can I do with him or not do with him that I could do with him a few books ago when he was more vigorous and his health was in better shape. So I've enjoyed that process. I mean, I know it's worrying for fans because they go, well, at some point he's got to shuffle off this mortal coil. No, that doesn't ever happen. What happens is the author shuffles off this mortal <laughs> coil. But the characters remain to be reborn another day. Young Morse. Colin Dexter had no concept of Endeavour Morse, young Morse. But Morse came back after, the, after his creator's death. Um, we've seen it with Montalbano, young Montalbano wasn't the idea of the author of the Montalbano books. It came after it. So Sherlock Holmes, of course, people keep reinventing Sherlock Holmes over and over again. So just because I've popped my clogs doesn't mean to say that Rebus ever will. <laughs> well, do you, do you think, are you tempted, having done Macalvani, you know, the early, early Glasgow book, that you might start doing Young Rebus? Young Rebus. Teenage yeah, I Rebus. I, I would, I would have like. said no to that up until the point I wrote that Macalvani book, and it did make me think, oh, Ian, you could write historical fiction and it would be quite fun to do a book with Rebus back in his, his kind of macho 
heyday when he was dark and dangerous and brooding and got into fights and things, things he cannot do now. Um, uh, so that's a couple of fights in him. Huh? He gets in a couple of fights in here. Yeah, but he loses badly. Yeah. He just can't. Uh, <laughs> he's an old he's, geezer. He's an old geezer. What can I say? Um, so he went out, the thing is, it would, it would be a dent to his pride to get into a fight because he knows he would lose. I mean, I think Malcolm Fox is it this book where Malcolm Fox and we're going to square off. And Fox says to him, Really? You know, I'm, I'm 25 years younger than you. I'm just going to put you down. I'm going to deck you straight away. And Rebus backs off. I mean, t- 20 years ago, Rebus would not have backed off from that confrontation. But. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, maybe, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm contracted to do one more book, so I've got to do something. Yeah. I've got to do, and I mean, there is a, there is a cliffhanger at the end of this one. So uh, who knows? Let's see what happens. Do you know? I've got a vague idea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've got a vague idea what happens next, but only, I remember one of the early Rebus books, Let It Bleed, had a very open ending, cliffhanger ending, open ending. Rebus had some information on an MP or something. He went into an office to talk to the, the high, high ups about it. And I left it at that. We never found out the result. And my American publisher said, oh, no, 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 no. Crime readers come to crime fiction for closure. We can't have a, an open ending. So I had to write an extra chapter for the American market that just dotted the I's and crossed the T's. And I just thought, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just lowest common denominator stuff. They're terribly worried that they'll lose two readers in the Midwest, you know, who didn't like the fact you give it an open ending. It's like they changed the title of Flesh Market Close, a real street in Edinburgh. In America, it was changed to Flesh Market Alley because Americans won't know what a close is. I said, the first thing he does is walk down Flesh Market Close and open a door and go into a building. It's, it's immediately obvious it's a type of street. And they went, oh, no, we're going to call it Flesh Market Alley. Then American fans come to Edinburgh and go, where the hell's Flesh Market Alley? <laughs> you know, there isn't a Flesh Market Alley, it's Flesh Market Close. Why did you change it? Because my publisher thinks you're stupid. <laughs> you go, but the reason we read these books is because we want to be introduced to a new culture. We want cultural references. We don't want it all made easy for us. Anyway, America is another country, as they say in the trade. Yeah. So they, but, but I mean, for a while, Rebus used to go out and open the trunk of his car. You go, fuck, it would just, you know. Don't, they said, you can't, you can't put a fag in his mouth. Why can't he put a fag in his mouth? All oh, right, okay. <laughs> why, can't he, why can't he pick up a pencil and use a rubber? Ah, okay. <laughs> Yeah, there are, there are nuances in the English language that I was unaware of when I started writing these books. Oh. Oh, when you say people come to crime, crime fiction, or some people come to crime fiction for closure, and one of the really notable features of Rebus is, you know, he's not a morally straightforward character. I mean, you know, someone like Philip Marlowe is a, is a paladin in a, in a kind of world of darkness mm. and grime, but he's this sort of uncomplicatedly good character inside or do you see Rebus as kind of a paladin or is he halfway to being a baddie? I mean, he's, he's weighed down by his conscience in this book. Yeah, I mean, the title, A Heart Full of Headstones, that basically, I mean, although it's a reference to a Jackie Levin song, it's also um, a reference to Rebus. The, the heart is his heart and it's full of headstones. His, his, uh, he's full of the cases that he's worked on, the murder victims, the families, uh, the cases that were unsolved, the ones that were solved. He carries around the weight of all that with him. That's the headstones. Um, I think he is. I think he has done bad things in the past. Of course, he's done bad things in the past, and he's got away with it to a large extent. 
Uh, and this book, not giving away too much, but part of the plot um, revolves around a cop in the present day who is a nasty piece of work and has been, is being charged, they're about to be charged with spousal abuse, with domestic abuse, domestic violence. And he wants to do a deal with the detectives, notably Siobhan Clark, who used to be Rebus's partner in the police. Um, and he wants to do a deal, he's gonna, he's gonna grass up his fellow cops in this really dirty police station. And in doing so, he is gonna name names, including John Rebus, because in times past, John Rebus was part of, the, part of this circle who did nasty things and got away with it and covered it up and got away with it. And that very much is okay, a reflection of the way policing used to be, but also, as we know, the way policing is still is, still is in, in, to some degree. So the Sarah Everard case uh, was in the forefront of my mind. You know, a cop using his badge to get a woman into a car so he could, so he could murder her. Then there was the, the two sisters who were killed in a park in London and the cops protecting the cordon were taking selfies and sending them to their mates and joking about it. And, and, and it's just horrible stuff is still going on. I mean, in Scotland, we've got the Sheikh Bayou case where a, a, a black man was, was, was basically killed on the street by police officers in Kirkcaldy. Um, all these things, and, and Black Lives Matter in the States as well, I mean, all these things are now well recorded. The police still have bad apples, plenty of them. And I don't think we can ignore it or avoid it. And we, we deserve something better. And so this book was sort of looking at the kind of police we get the kind of police we need and the kind of police we deserve. Um, and I know that people like Michael Connolly in the States, for example, who also writes about police detectives, has been thinking through the same things about how can we as writers about police officers say these are the good, these are the goodies, these are the tarnished knights in, um, in Raymond Chandler's phrase, uh, when in fact some of them are doing terrible things and for decades got away with it and in some cases would still be getting away from it. I mean, this, the guy who killed Sarah Everard, his, his mates and the police knew that he was, he was an ugly person and that he was doing terrible things. His nickname was the rapist, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was just, just and, and they were, of course, there was, there was a kind of cover up, there was a kind of cover up, a siege mentality. We look after each other. And that's what this book focuses on, a completely fictitious Edinburgh police station. <laughs> Next to Tynecastle Stadium. There, I checked, there isn't a police station there. <laughs> I was very careful, I checked. But, uh, you know, I, I can have rotten, some rotten, uh, too many rotten apples in a barrel, let's put it that way. Yeah. I wonder what your relationship with the police is, because I know that people who write about the police a lot, a lot of crime writers, end up being sort of having quite close contact with the police. Yeah. I mean, James Elroy, weirdly, despite the fact that his police men are uniformly corrupt, mm -hmm. you know, he spends his whole time hanging out with ex-coppers. Linda LaPlante's got a kind of yeah, hotline Peter, to the... Peter James in the yeah. UK is the closest one we've got. Peter James hangs out a lot with Brighton police, goes in patrol cars with him and stuff, has actually sponsored a police car. So he's got his books plastered all over a Brighton police car. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't do that. I don't do that. I mean, the cops I hang out with are long retired. Um, I've got enough contacts. If I've got a specific question of procedure, there are people I can talk to. Does it matter to you to get it right? I th it does matter to me that I get it right. Um, it does, because this is no longer a hobby for me. This is a well-paid profession. And I should be getting it right. I should be doing the kind of work. And for example, the, the, usually my books end before the court case, because I've got very limited knowledge of what happens in a court case. 
But this one begins and ends with a court case. So I got a friendly lawyer, a QC, or we would now say a KC, but she was a QC when, I, when I, she helped me out with this, to go through it and just check that the language was correct. Um, and I was lucky because my son had been a juror, so he was able to tell me, he'd been a juror during COVID, so he was able to tell me who's wearing masks, who's not wearing masks, who's in the court, who's not in the court, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it was, so I got, you know, yeah, I, just, I, I do, and I, I walk around Edmund. In fact, I gave myself a, oh, I decided that, that the crime in this book would happen in Constitution Street in Leith. I then wrote the first draft. I don't do the research until after the first draft. That speeds things up because by then I know what I need to know, not what I might need to know. So I go down to Constitution Street, completely shut off for tram works. <laughs> completely shut off. I'm going, oh, no. Do I change it? Do I change the location? Or do I just work with this? So, of course, when the police turn up at the murder scene, there's, they can't park anywhere. They can't, get, they can't get the ambulances in. The scene of crime team can't get in. They're parking miles away. They're having to walk in with their gear. Um, and it actually made it quite interesting. It made it quite interesting. But at first I was going, oh, no, Ian, what have you done? Because um, I didn't know until I walked down there that it was, and that's what I do. I'll go and I'll check out the police station. Is it still a police station? What's happening around about it? Um, it's great. I quite like that. I quite like doing, and in fact, the previous book, which was written during lockdown, the only thing I didn't do was go to Edinburgh Airport. There was a scene at Edinburgh Airport at the car rental place, and you weren't allowed to travel more than five miles from home, and I lived 10 miles from Edinburgh Airport. So I couldn't go and check out the car rental place. So that was all fictitious. But I had managed to go up to the north coast of Scotland and do the drive up where Rebus goes because the book takes place up around Tongue and Durness. And I was able to go and do all that literally just before lockdown happened. Um, and that meant oh, those scenes were all kosher. Although the book was meant to be set in Tongue and when I got there, it was far too big and bustling for my, for my use. It had a police station, it had a hotel, shops. I went, oh no, I want somewhere weird than this. So I was lucky, I just drove out and the next place I came to Betty Hill. Perfect, <laughs> absolutely perfect. And did the good people of Betty Hill thank you for setting it? The good people of Betty Hill don't know because I gave it a fictitious name. Uh, uh, they know now. Yeah, they, of course they know. They just took one look at it and went, hang on a minute, five miles east of Tongue. That's, <laughs> that's us. I, I pre I, for a, I've got a house in the Black Isle and uh, every time I went up to the Black Isle, folk would say, set a murder here, set a murder here. Brilliant, set a murder here, set a murder here. So there was a rebus book where the murder happened at the Black Isle. And they went, why'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> but I was very careful. I've got a place in Crummerty. And I was very careful that Rebus got no further than the next village along from Crummerty. Never quite made it to Crummerty. So the, the bad stuff all happened in, around Fort Rose and Rosemarkey. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've not set any murder. I come up here quite a lot. I, I come up to the Fife Arms quite a lot for wee long weekends away and stuff. And I do a lot of walking around here. Uh, Linda D is one of my favorite, one of the most beautiful spots in the world, one of my favorite places in the world. I keep thinking, ah, you could, Ian, you could. <laughs> but so far, I haven't. <laughs> Maybe you will. Now, as you say, Rebus is, there's only so long he can keep going. Do you, are you kind of auditioning between Siobhan Clark and Malcolm Fox as to who's going to be your next series protagonist, or are they just in? No. No, I think, I, I mean, I've not found, a, I would love to have written the Siobhan Clark book. That would be the obvious choice after Rebus retired, but I've never found a plot that felt like it was hers. I mean, I get the theme first, then I get the plot, and then look at which character or characters do I need to best tell the story. And I've not found one yet that felt like it was her story. Now, towards the end of the Rebus books, the first time around, 
exit music. She, was, she had parity. She had as much time on the page as him. But he's such a big character that when he enters a scene, or Cafferty, the gangster who runs Edinburgh, enters a scene, it just seems to suck all the energy, all the oxygen out of the room for other characters. So Siobhan would disappear. And Malcolm Fox would disappear. And you were left with just Rebus and or Cafferty. So, yeah, I just, I, I just you know, I, I would love to do that. But I don't know. I, I think it's much more likely that I'll just stop. I think it's much more likely that I'll just stop. I will run out of ideas. You know what? I take my heart off to somebody like um, uh, Lee Child, who just went, I'm done. And luckily, he's got a brother who's a thriller writer. So he just passes the baton to him. I've not got a brother who's a thriller writer. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I hope, hopefully I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll stop before the books start to get bad <laughs> or indifferent or I start to get bored. You can always tell with a long-running series of books when the author starts to get a bit bored with the characters. Usually they take them on holiday. <laughs> uh, and a murder happens when they're on holiday. You go, that's just so you can go on holiday. Yeah. You can't know. see Rebus going on holiday, is uh, it? And Reba, Rebus thing. doesn't have a passport. How's he going to go on holiday? <laughs> Rebus's idea of a holiday is to go to the Oxford bar and sit reading the paper in the back room. That's, that's a holiday for him. Um, so no, I can't imagine him ever taking a holiday or ever me writing a book where he goes on a holiday and just stumbles out, oh, murder in the, um, oh, there's been a murder on the cruise liner. <laughs> Who can we call on? Ah, Rebus, come here. You'll do it. There's no Poirot. We'll, do, we'll have you instead. Um, no, I can't imagine that happening. No, I don't, I mean, I only take it, I mean, lots of writers have plotted out the way, I mean, famously there was um, an American writer who plotted, you know, A is for Alibi and went through, didn't quite get to Z before she died. I think she got to X or Y. Um, Sue Grafton. Um, and I've, ne I've never think more than one book ahead. I mean, as I sit here talking to you, I've literally got nothing for the next book. And as I've said to you, come January this year, I, I didn't even have this. So, I mean, like, 1st of January this year, this didn't exist in any form in my head. Um, it, was, it was only by going on holiday. <laughs> uh. as, as, as my wife said to, to the, our accountant, it was only by going on holiday to St. Lucia that Ian could write this book. Um, <laughs> is there no way of putting that down as a taxable expense? <laughs> God bless her, you've got to try. You have got to try. Thank you very much for coming along today. Thanks very much, folks. Thank you, Sam.